0: Good morning. morning. Yeah, welcome to Park Church. We are uh, so glad that you are here on this beautiful Sunday morning. My name is Matt. I am the associate pastor here at Park, and I'm excited to be able to continue in our series that we've heard a little bit about already. It's called The Story, and what we're talking about is the big story of the Bible. But what we're saying is that this is actually the big story of the entire world. This is the one true story of the world. Not that other stories aren't true, of course, but that, as Paul put it, it, all of our stories can be folded up, can be written into this story, or we could live against the story, and that's not great news. But uh, we basically divided the big story, this one true story of the world, into six different acts. Think of it like a six-act play, right? And so a few weeks ago, we started with uh, the first one, which is the uh, story of creation. And it's represented by that down arrow there. And that down arrow is meant to represent God coming down, creating a world, creating it good, creating us at the center of it very good in order to bear his image, to reflect him out into the world. And we were made as human beings the prize of his creation. We were made to flourish. We were made to live life with a capital L, abundant life. And what that looked like was life in good, peaceful relationships, fruitful relationships with one another, with ourselves, with the world around, but most importantly, with God himself. We were made to know and to be known by God, to live in close connection in communion with God. That's what we were made for. That's actually what this entire universe exists for, for us to live in harmony with God. And as we learned uh, the next week, that all kind of went wrong when human beings decided they didn't need God. Remember the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. God said, don't eat from that one tree. And what do they do? They think they know better than God, which is the same thing as saying, we don't really need you, God, so we're going to try to live without you. They eat from the tree. And that's where the big S word, that's where sin comes in. And with sin comes death through the destruction of all those relationships with one another, ourselves, the world around, but most importantly, the broken relationship with God. That's where it all comes from. And so, at the end of that story, God is left with a choice: Do I scrap this whole thing, or do I rescue? Do I redeem? Do I restore? And if nothing else, you will hear that God is a God who is faithful to His purposes, faithful to what He's done. And so He decides to rescue, and He launches a rescue. Up, oh, sorry, that was my fault. He launches a rescue project. Can you go back. Yeah. Oh no! Here we go. This is, this, is, this is why, yeah, this is why we don't, yeah, okay. Anyway, he launches a rescue project, and it is represented by that arrow right there. God could have decided to directly uh, save things, but he doesn't. He decides to work through a person through a people. And he takes his people, and through this people, Israel, God's people, he means to undo the damage that was done in the fall, in the rebellion with Adam and Eve. Not just their story, but it's our story. And God means to undo that. And uh, the problem was was sin. So he wants to deal with the sin of the world through these people. And the problem is that their relationship with God has been broken. And so God means to re- to uh, reveal Himself to the world, to deal with sin, and to re- to deal with sin and to reveal God to the world. And that's what He means to do through His people. And over the course of their life together, there are highs and lows in this for sure. But at the end of it, they fail. They don't do so well. And so God has another decision to make. Does He scrap it? Or does he rescue? Does he redeem? And God is a God who is faithful above all else, so he decides to rescue. And so he doesn't scrap Israel, but he comes in person as one of them, as a faithful Israelite. Um, And he does the thing that they were meant to do on their behalf. He deals with sin, and he shows God to the world. He reveals God to the world. And he does that by coming in person, in the person of his son, Jesus. We talked about him last week. And so last week, we talked about how Jesus came and he showed God what, uh, he showed the world who God was, what it meant to live a life that we were uh, meant to live. He launched what's called the kingdom of God, which is what happens when God's purposes actually happen on earth as they are in heaven. And uh, he taught and he did miracles and he healed and he brought life to people. And then in the center of it, he was crucified and he was dead, and he was buried in the ground, and on that cross, sin was dealt with. It was as if all of the sin of the world was laid on his shoulders, and when he died, that sin died with him, and it was buried in the ground, never to be heard from again. And three days later, uh, God the Father raised him to new life, and in his new life, he gives us new life. And so the problem, which was sin, has been dealt with. And the other problem that people didn't know God, how could they relate to God? That's been changed because God has revealed himself through his son. And yet, the situation that we all exist in today, that our world exists in, is that those two things don't seem to have changed all that much, right? Sin is still a problem out there. Sin is still a problem in here, at least in here for me. Um, People still don't know God. There's a good chance you're leaning on the light switch. Let's just start over. There's a good chance that people don't know God. Sin is still out there, people don't know God. Um, so what we're talking about this morning is what is our part in the story. What are we to do about it? What is God doing about it? And you'll notice uh, that it is the same arrow for Act 5 of this story that is for Act 3. You see that? It's the same arrow pointing forward with a mission. Um, The mission of God's people in Act 3 was to deal with sin and to reveal God to the world. Our mission today, as God's people today, the church, it's the same but a little different. Sin has been dealt with. So our mission is not to deal with it. Instead, our mission is to tell people that sin has been dealt with. To proclaim that uh, sins have been forgiven on the cross. God has taken care of them himself. And our mission, then, is to show God to the world, because because the world around is finally free to actually see him. That's what what we're called to. That's what we are here for as a church. One of the earliest followers of Jesus and church leaders um, put it like this, talking about what we're made for. He said, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. That is, the world has been broken, sin is a problem, but in Christ, God is fixing all that, he is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, their sins against them, but entrusting us with this message, with the message of reconciliation, that sin has been dealt with, that God is here, that God loves you, that God wants a relationship with you and always has, that's what we are here for. And the way that this is expressed in various ways throughout the New Testament, Corinne actually prayed some of them, we heard some of them, At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says to his followers, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them. Teach them to obey everything I've done, right? Uh, Everything I've commanded. Go and make disciples. Go and make new followers. People who can know this, right? Earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. There will be darkness all around, but you, as my followers, are going to go and bear light into the world. Peter, another of Jesus' earliest followers, said that we are a royal priesthood. Priests, ideally, are people who, who bring people to God and God to people. That's, that's our work, to bring God to people and people to God. That's what we're here for. Paul, um, elsewhere in this letter to the Corinthians, said that we are his ambassadors. We have this message of reconciliation. Now, our role is to be his ambassadors, to represent him in the world, to speak on his behalf to those who don't know him yet. That's what we're here for. There's a moment in the uh, beginning of the book of Acts, which tells the story of the New Testament, of the early church in the New Testament. Um, There's a story in the beginning of Acts where Jesus just kind of lays it out. He says to all of us, You will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, that's where they were, in Judea and Samaria, around, and to the ends of the earth. A witness is someone who has seen something, who knows something, who has experienced something, who is an expert in something, so that they can testify to it, right? That's what we're called for, to know, to see, to experience, um, to become experts in Jesus so that we could show other people, so that we could testify to other people. That's what our role is as the church. That is what Act 5 is all about, to bridge that gap between Jesus, what he has done, and uh, Act 6, what he will do in the future, right? That's what we are here for. That's always been the role of the church. Right from the very beginning, right from when Jesus sent this until the very end. It's been obscured over time, but that's what we're here for. That's what Park Church is here for. And that's what you are here for. That's what your purpose is here. Uh, If I were to sum up the mission of the church in one sentence, it is to follow Jesus in such a way that we show him to the world so that the world can come to know him and follow him too. We follow Jesus in such a way that shows others who he is so that they can come and follow him too. That's what our mission is. It's not to be, um, the church is not a building, right? That's not it. The church is not a social club. The church is not um, something we do for tradition on the holidays and weekends and weddings and funerals. That's not what the church is about. The church is a movement. The church is a mission. The church is a message, right? All around a messiah. Lots of M's in that sentence. That's what what the church is. Um, And so I've kind of front-loaded all of the information you need to have about what the church is because I want to make this extremely practical. I want to make this practical for each and every one of you because here's the deal with Act 5. It's our part of the story. This is the part that we live in. That arrow going forward, go and make disciples, right? Go be my witnesses. That's the part that we live in. We are responsible for it. But the problem with Act 5 is that we don't have a finished script. We don't have a finished script, right? Um, We know a little bit about it, but we don't know what the next line is. We don't know what the next movement is. We don't know exactly where it's going. And what do you do when you're in a play and you don't have the actual script. When you don't have it, you have to learn to improvise, right? You have to learn to improvise. And improvising doesn't mean doing whatever you want, right? You probably seen the Office episode where Michael Scott uh, is in the improv class and he keeps pulling a gun out, right? Like, that's not the kind of improvising that we're meant to do, right? That doesn't fit the story. Um, if you've listened to like jazz improvisation, like. Pe- People who are really good at that, they know the song. They know the key, and the time signature, and the movements. They know the theme to come back to. They know what other people are doing. They know it. There's great continuity, but there's also great room and freedom for beautiful innovation, for for awesome things to happen. That's our part in the story, um, to improvise based on what we know. So we don't have the script, but what we do have is a few things in our favor. We have Acts 1 through 4, right? We know what we're made for. We know what this world is for. We know what went wrong, and we live that every day to some degree. We know about the rescue plan. We know what God's project is. We know how that works. We know about Jesus, right? We know that. We know a little bit of Acts 6 of where this is going. So we have that story. So what we know is we know the character of the one who is writing the story. We know what he cares most about. We know what the big movements are. We know what's most important to him. We have the heart of God for us available. The other thing that we have is that um, in Act 4, the the writer of the story happened to step out onto onto the stage, and he became the actor in the play. He became the main actor, and we are his understudy. And he acted a little bit for us in Act 5. We have that. We also have a little bit of Act 6, so we know where the story is going. It's kind of like Curb Your Enthusiasm. We have like the like basic idea of where the scene is going, but we have freedom within it to improvise, right? Um, we have all of that, but we have the beginning of Act 5. We have a few scenes where Jesus says, Go and make disciples, be my witnesses, that sort of thing. And so what I want to do this morning is unpack one part of Act 5 for us that really gives us our instructions as to how we uh, can improvise. So it's a scene that happens on the very first Easter day. Um, there was a bunch of, of his followers who, when they saw him be crucified and they saw him die, they scattered, they ran away. They thought that Jesus was a failure. He just died on a Roman cross. They thought he was a failure. They thought everything they put their hope in was all for naught. They were lost about what to do. They had to wait through that on Saturday. And on Sunday, They hear this news that his body is missing, and it's confusing for them, and they don't know what to make of it. They think his body's been stolen for some reason. They don't know, but there's also reports that maybe he's alive or something like that. They don't know what to do. So they're all gathered in this room in the center of Jerusalem, and this is where um, John picks up our story for us. He says, On the evening of that first day of the week, When the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Um, This isn't the purpose of the sermon, but maybe that's the word that you need to hear. We know what it's like to be afraid, to be insecure, right? To live in fear. Maybe what you need to hear is peace be with you. I am with you, I am alive, I am here, peace. They look at Jesus and they're confused because they saw him die. They know he was buried. They don't know how it's possible. And so Jesus does what Jesus does. He helps them understand. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. His side was where the spear went in and the blood and water came out. His hands, of course, was where he was nailed to the cross. He shows them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Jesus came to them and showed them what they couldn't see, what was true, that yes, he was dead, but now he is alive. And it brings them over joy, exuberance. And it ought to for us, this isn't the main part of the sermon, but this this is exactly true for us as well. The fact that Jesus is alive here, what it shows us is that he is not a failure. What it shows us is that God is absolutely faithful. And what it shows us is that no matter what we're afraid of or insecure of or nervous about or anything else, God is more powerful than that thing. God is more powerful than even death. And uh, he brings peace into that situation. And then he gives us our instruction for improv. He says, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. That's the instruction. That's, that's our instruction for improv, right? Um, you guys just saw what I did for the last few years. You guys saw the way I gave of myself. You guys saw what I said. You guys heard me. You were there when I reached out to people. You were there when I uh, served people, you were there when I healed, you were there when I did miracles you were you, you saw me get arrested, you saw me suffer for the sake of others. You guys saw the way I acted and act for now it 's your turn. go and do likewise, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you now, as simple as that instruction might uh, be, it's actually quite complex because there's a lot of questions with it how did the father send him and what does it mean to be sent and all of that sort of, there's a lot and so what i want to do is i just want to unpack what this means for us as people for us as like individuals it's true for us as a church and for the church worldwide but it's true for us as individuals because i want to help you live your part of the story in act 5 in a very practical very real life way and so the first thing if you're If you're anything like me, um, you need to know why you're doing something. If you're given an instruction, you need to know what's the purpose behind this? What's what's the vision for this, right? What is it uh, that ought to be happening and and why? What's the motivation for this? Um, What's the motivation for God writing this play, for God writing this scene in the play? And uh, if only there were a passage in the Bible uh, perhaps even in this gospel written by the same man who perfectly summed up what the motivation was. And if only it were the most famous verse in all of the Bible, and you could see it on uh, signs at basketball games, right? And you know what it is, John 3:16. I mean, it's right there, the motivation for all this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Whoever believes in him shouldn't perish, but would have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. He continues, he didn't send his son so that the world would be condemned, but so that through him the world would have life. The world would be saved. For God so loved the world. There's an idea out there in our world today that God is not like this. That God is actually sort of against the world or God is fed up. With the world, or God is tired of the world, God is tired of you, or God just doesn't care, or God hasn't entered into the situation, or he has turned his back and sort of walked away. That is not what is true of the God who we see in Jesus, who we see revealed throughout the entire, the entirety of scripture. This is a God who loves the world so much that he sent his son, that he came in person. And uh, to put a finer point on it, it's not just that God loves, but it's that God loves the world, It's not just that God loves us. God does love us, but we are a part of the world. It is that God loves those people who are not here, who will never be in this place. God loves people who see things the right way, and He loves people who don't see things the right way, and who can get their act together, and people who cannot get their act together. And it means that God loves people who are good, and people who are bad, and people who are found, and people who are lost, and people who have an idea, and people who have No idea. And what that means for you is that God loves the people in your life, including you, who are difficult for you to love. And if you think about those people, the person who you live next to, who you wish was different, right? God's love is for that person. And the person who you work with, who you can't believe you have to deal with their nonsense day after day, that person is someone who God loves. And the kid who's bullying your kid, God loves that kid. And God loves the parents of that kid who don't deal with it. This is the world that God loves. This is the motivation for God sending his son into the world. And so it is the motivation for Jesus sending us into the world. It is the motivation, the animation for us in our everyday lives. And so the question that I'll ask each and every one of you is what is it that motivates you? What is is it that drives you? What is the fuel that powers your engine. As you get up in the morning, put your feet in the ground, what is it? For a lot of people, for a lot of people, it is not this. It's something more like this. It's, it's something like fear. Fear is a powerful motivator. It, it is a strong fuel, but it also is something that ruins your engine. Fear of, fear of not having enough, right? Fear of not having enough money, not having enough stuff, not having enough friends, not having enough power, not having enough influence, not having enough purpose, fear of not being good enough, of not being smart enough, tall enough, thin enough, pretty enough, whatever it is enough. Fear of being alone, right? Fear of doing such a wrong thing that no one will like you anymore. Fear of irrational things, fear of missing out. We all walk, not all of us, but we walk around in life sometimes driven By Fear so that what gets us out of bed in the morning is avoiding the things that we're afraid of rather than actually living the life That we were meant to live if that's your fuel. It is powerful. It will work for you, but it will not uh, Be good for you. It will not be good for your vehicle Right another another powerful driver a powerful motivator is competition Waking up in the morning and saying I just need to be better than for some of us. It's I need to be the best I need to be the best at my work. I need to be the best in my family. I need to be the best. I need to be better than. I need to be better than that person. I need to be perceived as better than that person. I look on Instagram and see the way that people live lives and say, I need to compete with that, right? Or you see celebrities and you say, I need to compete with that. I need to be better than… For some of us, it's just I need to be better than someone. As long as I'm better than someone, I can look down on them and say I'm a little bit better. And that competition at life drives us. Another powerful driver of us, I will just, it's a new word I'm making up, it's uh, unfaith. Do you know what I mean? Like, unfaith. Faith says generally, God, I trust you. I, I believe in you. In some way, shape, or form, you have the whole world in your hands. And so, and so, and so I'm going to work hard. I'm going to do what I can. But I trust you, God, to take care of this. Unfaith says I'm not really sure if you've got this, so I need to do everything. Unfaith says, yeah, I don't trust your methods, so I need to be in control of the situation, of the relationship, of the environment. I need to be in control all the time. Unfaith says, I just need to survive. I need to do it myself, and I'm not going to trust God to get me through. These are the things that unfaith says. We are driven by all sorts of different things. Each of them are powerful, effective, and they work, and they will last for your entire life. But they won't bring life. And they won't be the life that you were made to live. If you are someone who takes the the command of Jesus here seriously, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Um, And you are driven by something other than God's relentless love for the world around you need to replace that fuel in your engine and put, and put this fuel in instead. So the question you should be asking is, well, how do I do that, right? How do I do that? And there's two answers I'll give. One uh, is, do you remember what happened right after Jesus said this? He, he breathed the Holy Spirit. He said, receive the Holy Spirit. This is at the heart of it. It is a work of God in your life, in your heart. To transform your mind. It is God's work. It is the work of God's spirit within us to actually do this. And so for you, if you want this to be the thing that actually motivates you, that gets you out of bed in the morning, ask God for it. Trust in God. Lean in to God for this, right? Ask God for it. And the second answer, and it's really the same thing as the first, just worded differently, is this is a product of a relationship with Jesus. This is just the Spirit's work in your life, your heart transformed, your mind. This is a product of your ongoing relationship with Jesus. And this is sort of um, the second part that I want to unpack, kind of moving behind the motivation. I want to just talk about the relationship with Jesus, because it's super important. If we are sent into the world as Jesus is sent, how on earth can we do that if we don't know Jesus ourselves? Right? This is just kind of common sense. How on earth can we go just as him if we don't know him ourselves? And so I'll ask you uh, the question, would you say that you know him well enough to go just as him? Would you say that you're following him closely enough, intimately enough to actually go into the world just as him? For those of you who are not following Jesus here, the answer is obviously no, and that's where you are right now, and we, our, our hope for you would be that someday the answer would be a resounding yes, and we would love to walk alongside with you, right? But just hang tight. Um, if the answer is, uh, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, but no, I don't feel like I know him well enough, well, I think it's time for you to turn that on and to go and to and to start getting serious about your relationship with Jesus. Last week at community group, um, we were talking about uh, kind of what, what what we admire most about Jesus, what kind of impresses us most about him. Um, and people were giving all kinds of really great answers. We had a good discussion. But as I'm sitting there, I'm thinking to myself, we ought to be bust, bursting at the seam, at the seams to be talking about Jesus. Like we ought to be like, you can't stop us from talking. That conversation ought to be so robust that we, that, like, we have to stop it in order to go home and go to sleep, right? Like, we, we ought to be saying, like, gosh, do you remember how merciful Jesus is, the way that he interacted with that woman? Do you remember that? Or do you remember that scene where he reached out to that person who just was unreached? Do you remember how he did that? Do you remember how he reached out into my own heart and touched me? We ought to be busting at the seams to be talking about Jesus like this if our mission as a church is to follow Jesus in such a way that shows him to others, we need to be serious, more serious about following Jesus. And so if your answer is anything other than a resounding yes to that question of do you know him well enough to go just as him, I would love for you this morning to recommit yourself to taking that relationship with Jesus seriously. Recommit yourself to reading scripture, not just to read about him, but to allow his words, his his um, model in scripture to actually shape and to transform and to change things in your head, to change things in your life and in your heart. Commit to doing that. If you want to do that with people, come alongside us and do that. Recommit yourself to talking to him, to, to prayer, to giving yourself. Recommit to worship. I mean, here on Sundays, yes, but not just here on Sundays, but to all areas of your life, uh, living with gratitude, with worship, appreciation for God, um, recommit yourself to serving Him in a way that actually stretches you, that actually challenges you. Recommit to doing that. That's what uh, that's what we need to do if we are going to be people who were sent, just as just as Jesus was sent. And so the last kind of thing that I'll talk about as as a way of kind of as a way of kind of unpacking this. Um, it's just kind of what it means to be sent. What it means to, to actually improv, to actually follow Jesus. What does it mean to be sent as Jesus was sent? And in the most literal sense, it does just mean following Jesus, following in his footsteps. It means doing Jesus' kind of things. Uh, and if you think about what Jesus did, right, what he spent his time doing, I mean, think about it for a second. He gathered people around him who he loved and poured into in order to show them what was true about God and about life, right? He did that. Um, Jesus, uh, he went out and he healed people who who were suffering. Jesus went out and he brought life into places that were lifeless and hope into places that were hopeless. He brought light into dark places. Jesus would enter people's prisons with them in order to free them. Right? He would would enter in their prison of illness. He would enter into their prison of of darkness and demon possession and evil. He would enter into their prison um, of their sin. He would enter into the prison of the oppression that the world had placed, and he would do that in order to release them. He would reach out to people who were not people who he should have been reaching out to. He would touch people who were untouchable. He did things that were impossible he did things that couldn't have been done and he did things that shouldn't have been done. He also spoke truth to power. Um, he lived his life in such a way that was directly in the face of the way that the world worked. He gave of himself. He was the one at the party who took the towel around his waist and washed the feet. He was the one who gave of himself. He put himself aside for the redemption of others until he gave of himself to the point where he gave his life. And when he was raised from the dead, with his new life, he gave new life. We could talk about what Jesus did for every Sunday for the rest of our lives, and it wouldn't be enough. And the question that should be kind of uh, forming in your head is, how can I do that? How can I bring healing to someone who is suffering? How can I enter the prison with someone who is imprisoned and help, if nothing else, comfort them, but help walk them out? How can I bring life to a person that's lifeless or hope to a situation that's hopeless? How can I speak truth to a powerful person or thing that's oppressing others? How can I do that? Those are the right questions to ask. We could ask those questions forever. And so what I want to do is just say two things. Um, One is that in a few weeks, we're going to do a little mini-series, like a a four-part series leading up to Easter that's just about this. How do we live as Act 5 people? This is our part of the story. How do we live as Act 5 people? That's, that'll be coming in a few weeks. The second thing I wanted to say is just I want to give you something extraordinarily practical to do. Just one thing to do. And it comes in three steps. Step one. And you can do it right now. Think about something that impresses you most about Jesus. Something that you admire most about Jesus. The way he healed. The way he reached out. The way he uh, brought hope. Think about that thing. The second thing is uh, think about someone in your orbit, in your world, who needs that thing from Jesus. Think about someone in your world who needs that thing from Jesus. And the third third step is you you go and do it. You go and bring it. If you are sent into the world as the Father has sent Jesus, then it is yours to go and bring and do. It is yours and not someone else's. It is yours. He sent you to go and do this. If If you need help, ask him for help. Ask us for help. If you need encouragement, ask him for encouragement. If you need courage, ask for courage. And if you need forgiveness first, ask for forgiveness. If you need inspiration or opportunity, ask him for it. But it is yours to do. The thing with act five is it's not someone else's. It's not the person next to you to do. I mean, it is theirs too, but it is yours. It's not the church next to us to do, it is ours. It is not people who stand up here job to do. It's our job too, but it is yours to do. And here's the thing. If you're not doing it, then who, who will? And if not now, then when? It is yours to do, and the thing is, if we actually were to commit to doing this, if we actually were to take up this call to be sent as Jesus was sent, do you know what would happen in our in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our schools, in Monmouth County? Do you know what would happen? The same thing uh, that the disciples experienced when they saw Jesus, when they saw his hands and his side how much he suffered for them when he when they saw what was true finally they were overjoyed when we actually could take a step out into the world outside of ourselves into the world around following Jesus showing him people will see him through us and they will be overjoyed there that they will have life in new ways fear will go away hopelessness will go away death will not be so deadly anymore our part of the story to live in, to tell, and to improvise. Uh, So let's ask God to help us do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, the way that you first have loved us. Before we even had a chance to respond, you gave yourself for us while we were still sinners. You came to us even when we rejected you. Even when we all decided that we would be better off without you, you know what's better for us, and we are so thankful for that, and we praise you for that. Lord, you give us a job to do. You give us a task, and it's not to, it's not to sit around. It's not to um, just enjoy you for ourselves, but it's to follow you in such a way that shows you to the world. And so we pray that you would help us to do that. If there, are, if there are things in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives that are driving us that shouldn't be, we pray that you would help us to push those things out of the way, to open ourselves up to your motivation. We pray that you would pour your love into our hearts through the Spirit. We pray that you would do that even right now, that if we are living in fear, if we are living in locked doors like those disciples were, that you would help us not to be afraid but to trust, to trust you to not live in unfaith, but in faith. Lord, for those of us who feel um, the call to take our relationships with you seriously, we pray that you would uh, work that within our hearts. You would put, our, put us in relationships with, with, with other people where that could be encouraged and fostered. And then, Lord, we also just pray um, that, for, that for the person, the situation, the relationship that you put on our heart, to go and be sent to just as you were sent, we pray that you would push us out the door to go do that. We know we won't be perfect. We know we will make mistakes. That's not your concern. We just pray that we could be obedient to you and actually follow you. Lord, the joy that the disciples felt, we pray that we too would feel that joy. and We pray that we could be a people who are able uh, to lead others to experiencing that joy as well. And so we lift up this entire uh mission that you've given us. We lift it up to you, and in your name we pray. Amen.